This episode is brought to you by Get Mobile ID, the smart choice for MDL implementations. Put citizens in control with Get Mobile ID, fully ISO compliant and UL certified for all transaction modes. Learn more at getgroupna.com. Welcome to AnvaCast, bringing news, information, and expertise to the Anva community. Now celebrating our 90th anniversary. Here's your host, Ian Grossman. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the AnvaCast, everyone. This week, I'm pleased to welcome another first-time guest to our AnvaCast, a sister association. I have Doug Robinson, the executive director of NASIO, the National Association of State Chief Information Officers, the state CIOs. Doug, welcome to the AnvaCast. Ian, thanks for the invitation and glad to be here. In many ways, it's almost funny that we haven't had you sooner because, you know, in our motor vehicle administration world, um, so many of these AMBACAST episodes are about how technology is constantly changing and shifting the way our members deliver their services. Um, and I know your members are having the same conversation because you sit right in the middle of it. So let's start there and understanding what NASIO is. And, on, you know, obviously the name answers a lot of questions with state CIOs, but, you know, that's always, there's always more to that story. Well, uh, you're correct. We uh, we represent uh, the chief information officers of the states, the territories, and the District of Columbia. Currently, 54 members. We've got a couple of territories that currently uh, do not have an enterprise CIO. These are the, the, the chief executive appointed officials uh, for technology uh, within the executive branch of state government. Uh, mm. And if you think about the, the history of, of this, it's relatively new in comparison to other state officials. So the, the first state CIO was not appointed until the mid nineties. Mm -hmm. So uh, relatively young, although the association has been around over 50 years, hmm. uh, we had a different name before that. And we were focused on information systems. And the, I think the association, the leadership, the association made a fairly bold move after about a year of discussion in 2001 and changed the name of the association to reflect the growing uh, appointments of CIOs. At that point, only about half the states had an official mm -hmm. CIO in statute. So now they all do. They're all appointed officials and they, again, have a responsibility and authority over the executive branch only. And in, in many states, I know that in addition to the state CIO that has a kind of enterprise view, individual agencies might have their own CIOs. Uh, is that an overlap? Are they part of your ecosystem as well? Uh, they can be. Yeah, we have thousands of, of in terms of these state members. So, right, obviously, uh, we would not be successful. We only had 54. Uh, so mm -hmm. we have uh, the folks with that in the CIO organization. We can certainly talk about that. And then other agencies as well. So the state is the member. So our association is based on not individual, but state membership. So, oh, okay. uh, so the state is the member, uh, as well as our corporate membership and other nonprofit and educational groups. But those are the two primary constituencies that we serve. Obviously, the, the prime and the most important ones are state CIOs, but we also serve uh, the range. We, we see ourselves as representing essentially the, the voice of information technology uh, within a state government in general, but particularly the executive branch. So we mm -hmm. kind of look at that, uh, making sure that we can, uh, you know, obviously resonate with all the folks around the technology. But as you would expect, we can certainly talk about the, the, the business and operating models of state CIOs. There, there can often be 
misalignment or tension between the operating agencies and mm -hmm. the enterprise uh, IT organization in the state, depending on on the relationship management that's going on there. So that's always something we're talking about. One of our top certainly discussions all the time is generically business relationship management. And it's really about mm. the relationship between the CI organization and all the agencies like like DMV, like the the AMVA directors and uh, the what we what I what I call uh, my staff last me what I call the the you're not the boss of me agencies um, mm. and those are uh, so my time in state government that's what I called the other the other groups and we have been able to really develop uh, good working relationships with all the other the branches as well as certainly the other offices that are independent constitutionally elected and not part of this purview of the CIO we believe we have a a great opportunity there to share. Uh, information as well as collaborate with them on uh, on in, uh, the same kinds of issues as you mentioned. Yeah, and I imagine some of that is a lot of that is influenced with the, the the different technology platforms in terms of there are some states that it's very centrally controlled, built, maintained, and dispersed, and then there are states where the different agencies are running and operating their own systems, but yet still may be under this umbrella of a centralized CIO vision office. Correct. Correct. Because because the CIO. If you look at the statutory authority, which nobody likes to, to bring that up when they're talking about relationships <laughs> and say, well, according to the statute. But the reality is that they all have responsibilities for risk reduction. And by that, I mean cybersecurity. They most, mm -hmm. most of them have responsibility for uh, enterprise project management. They have a project management or a PMO office to oversee projects. They have responsibility for enterprise policies and directives. And so even though they may not be hosting or running the applications or the environment, as, as you said, the agencies still fall under that discussion around things like enterprise architecture, procurement review. So mm -hmm. there's lots of mm -hmm. things in, in, in the authority of the CIO across that are fairly common. We, we, yep. we obviously pay attention to those and there's some fairly common elements among all of that. They share you know, the, the certain legislative bodies look at all of that. So that is, uh, that is something we, we look at, but yes, that, that can cause uh, challenges. And as I, I don't think I've, I can do a podcast without using my phrase of you've seen one state, you've seen one state. And so they mm. all have different, you know, business models, operating models. Like you said, some are, we have states that are highly centralized and all of, for example, all of the IT employees, all the, the complement of IT employees all report under the CIO office. So it's a much more of a corporate model. And so and uh, the app application development is being done by this. So it's a very different than of a federated model where the agencies uh, are, are doing that at their own agency yeah. level. And well, I guess recognizing that each state is, as I like to say, uniquely unique. Right. Um, <laughs> is there an emerging best practice in the CIO community? Is the association looking at, you know, while you can't certainly shift everybody overnight to one way or the other, are there key, you know, stories of success that say when we follow some of these general tenants, things seem to work a little bit better? You are right on target. And so we actually describe that as over the, the, the course of all of our, our studies and research uh, over the many years, I like to call them patterns of success. Mm. So there are common patterns of success across states that are doing very well. 
uh, and they again they they get down to some of the basics, which are really being organized to succeed. And part of that is having overall governance. So what does mm-hmm. your governance of your technology environment look like? And and that's really important. Another would be certainly uh, investment, overarching investment management in what I, we would call, we just did a report a few months ago on enterprise portfolio management. So that's another mm-hmm. really good pattern. If you have, if the CI organization has visibility into the applications across all of the executive branch and they can manage those applications and by manage i mean from the investment standpoint and from the modernization standpoint and be from the the ranking and rating and say we're gonna we're gonna we gotta we gotta have a limited amount of dollars what should we where should we put those dollars for the best uh value and, and efficiency uh for the you know for the executive branch and that's that's really important cybersecurity and risk management is clearly one of those if you have a very mature mm-hmm. cybersecurity program there's lots of elements that, that describe what maturity is, but a number of those uh, we've written reports on and studied and, and studied those. So those are, those are very important is to have that in place. Having an enterprise architecture uh, is very critical for the states in terms of defining. And by that, I mean, without getting into the discipline of, of engineering and management, just mm-hmm. I call it, it's, it's, a, it's a blueprint for better government from a technology mm. standpoint. So that would define, again, the, the emerging, you know, the current directions and particularly technology standards is that this is, we've made a decision to commit to reducing the diversity and complexity of our environment. Uh, and mm-hmm. if you look at the spend in almost every state or every state agency on technology, the spend is really because of diversity and complexity. It's not because of a, one major project and a lot of it has to do with they have what I've described in the past years ago, the Baskin Robbins architecture, yep. right? So states have 31 flavors of everything. And yep. by, by doing that, they have actually increased their complexity, uh, increased their cost over time. And so again, an enterprise architecture begins to harmonize and, and rationalize all those differences and say, well, why do we have 26 case management platforms when 80, 90% of case management business process is all the same. So that's what state CIOs have been doing over time. And you can see that through you know, a variety of examples uh, across yeah. the states. Email and collaboration platform is a real evident example of, you know, how I know states that 20 years ago had 30 email platforms. Every agency ran their own email. And yep. that, you know, clearly doesn't happen today. You know, it's not something that states do. It's not yeah. something they would ever aspire to. It just happened by default, right? And so, uh, and I, even in my time as state government, that was a major, a major project was rationalizing all of that and making a decision to move to enterprise email and collaboration and calendaring for all of the executive yeah. branch and deliver that as a as a shared service to all the agencies. And now that's all cloud and, and software as a service, right? So we've yeah, seen absolutely. this. Modernization is going on. It's sometimes it's not as, as dramatic as we'd like to see. Yeah. Well, so I even, I remember that, you know, the, the cultural change of going to that shared platform of those email domains changing. Yes. And uh, it was, it was a cultural change and it, you know, required some relationship management for individual agencies to give up their, individual domains that they had been managing Absolutely. and running. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So you yeah, mentioned, good point. 
You mentioned two two topics um, in in some of your answers that you know are always big themes in the AMVA community: uh, cybersecurity and modernization. Um, cybersecurity, I think, on on two fronts, and even you know, as we we're chatting chatting today, there's news breaking that a couple of states have been hit by a attack because of a particular platform that many right. of them use that have become vulnerable. Um, I'm sure it's already crossed your desk. Cause certainly, certainly if it's crossed mine, I know it's crossed yours. It, it has. Yes. Uh-huh. And, and multiple federal agencies as well. So, okay. Yeah. I hadn't even seen that news yet. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, w- when something like that happens, um, you know, I know in, in our community, you know, what, the members are most concerned about is understanding which one of their customers might've been impacted and how to give guidance to their customers. I'm sure your members looking at it as well, but they're looking at it from a enterprise wide perspective about how did it happen? Where are the other vulnerabilities? How do you close these loopholes? Um, we're almost living it real time. You know, today as we're chatting, can you give me a sense of how does a cyber attack like what we're seeing today? Um, what's happening in the CIO world as, as we're chatting right now? Well, there, you know, obviously it's all about, uh, it, it has been for a number of years. It's, it's really all about uh, resiliency, recovery, remediation, and communication. So it's a lot of words mm-hmm. that end in T-I-O-N, <laughs> which, is the, which is the world of a state CIO anyway. But I think that's a big part of it is, uh, number one, as you're right, effectively communicating that clearly, right? And that's that's been a challenge. Crisis communication in the cyberspace is not as mature as it is in other areas. So Governor's offices, they—they're all—they—they're all, they, they're all used to communicating that. Uh, in things of a flood, we just had massive tornadoes and tragedies yesterday and last night. You know, they the elected and, and appointed officials have come accustomed to be able to communicate those types of of, of events. Uh, cyber is still a little bit immature on how do you actually communicate mm. that, and and at what point, and in some cases. Uh, do, do you wait? And that's been some of the guidance around sometimes because you're hoping to actually be able to identify the bad actors. So if you that, you know, in some cases it's, well, we're going to wait and see so we can we can maybe see if they're going to exfiltrate some data and we can identify those. Maybe we don't, maybe we don't want to make a public statement. I think the, mm-hmm. the recent guidance and certainly from CISA and others and from NASIO is no, as, as we always say, bad news doesn't age well. So you don't, you mm-hmm. don't wait and, you know, wait three weeks or a month to right. tell citizens that in fact, there there's a potential that their um, data has been compromised. And I think that's yeah. a, that's a real challenge. So, yeah, so that's what they're, I think, working on now, obviously resumption, you know, resumption of services and that kind of resiliency model. I think what has changed in certainly the last decade, and and we have been reporting and and we do a national, we do a a, a biennial study, a massive pre kind of preeminent study on cyber every two years with our friends at Deloitte Consulting. And we started in 2010. So we have tremendous amount of data around what's happening in cybersecurity and the maturity of that. And there's, again, a lot of, of, of patterns of success coming out of that. And one is to, to really for states to focus on managing cybersecurity as a risk to, I call it as a risk to the continuity of government, as mm. opposed to there could be a data breach. No, it's a risk to the continuity of government. It's a much different pers- discussion because it's today's environment is more about cyber disruption 
than theft of data. It's really about disrupting the business practices. It's ransomware. It is uh, hacktivism, right? It's 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 nation states. As we've seen, most of these events are, you know, even the even the phishing attacks uh, with malware are done by uh, both criminals, but also nation states. You know, by China, mm-hmm. by Russia, they're 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 trying to disrupt the continuity of government. So it's really changed the conversation about what cybersecurity should look like you know, in the States, you still have to do the basic cyber hygiene, but you have to be prepared for this, this new age of cyber disruption, uh, which is uh, much more problematic because, uh, you know, think about the the DMV environment. If there's a massive disruption in the business practice, that's, that's basic to the continuity of government. That's, you know, one of the fundamental services that every citizen thinks about when they think about state government. Uh, and so that causes major disruption to the process. And that's, I think that's today what the uh, what the, the bad actors, if you look at it from the election standpoint, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to reduce the trust in government. So that's so the, 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 the skeptic in me would say part of your answer sounds like we need to accept that these things are going to happen data breach, hacking is going to occur, and therefore you have to focus on the continuity and the recovery of it, uh, accepting the fact that in this world we're in now, there's only so many defenses you can build, and it's not a matter of if you're going to be breached and hacked, it's a matter of when, so be ready to react and continue your operations. Yeah. We, we preach that all the time, and I would say if you look at it, uh, the states have been States have actually fared very well over the Mm -hmm. the last decade in terms of any massive disruptions. Uh, Local governments in K through 12 organizations and higher education, healthcare, not as much. If you look at the the threat data and you look at the incident data, states have done very well, I think, in terms of that posture. But you're right. They're clearly investing in making significant investments on the detection side and the remediation. They, They are... Yeah, they're taking care of 99% of inbound threats at the gateway, at, at that DMZ zone where it's never impacting any state agencies, right? All of that's being thwarted. Millions and millions of attempts every day in most states. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all that uh, through their um, you know, capabilities and through their investments and working with their, their obviously their corporate partners in building those capabilities. That's, that's important. So I won't get into all the technologies, but you know, there's lots of (laughs) things that, that they're investing in. I think a lot of that has to do with the, the real growth in, in endpoint detection and remediation and the use of more sophisticated, this is an area where artificial intelligence, where AI engines and machine that they can, they're very valuable because they can, again, they're, they, the, these AI capabilities can examine these anomalies uh, uh, much faster than human eyeballs. So you can't mm. have, as we had in the past, uh, a bunch of cybersecurity analysts sitting there, you know, monitoring all this inbound and making those decisions. This can now be, yep. you know, automated at a very high level because of the pattern. So there's a lot more sophistication today, uh, but there's clearly, yeah, you're, the, the, the bad guys are always one step ahead because that's all they're focused on. Yeah. So. Now, the, the other side of that that we're seeing, obviously, there's that hacking data breach that has always been a threat and is an increasing threat. We're seeing in the ANVA community, and I'm curious if you're hearing this in the CIO world as it relates to working with other agencies, especially in the post-COVID environment where more 
citizen interactions have moved online. There's a whole other level of cybersecurity, uh, maybe more cyber fraud, where folks are trying to fraudulently do government business online because more government business is available online than previous, which is different than, say, that third party actor trying to hack an entire database. This is somebody right. trying to, you know, fraudulently get a credential or receive um, health benefits, perhaps, if you're in a different agency. Is that is that a trend in a conversation you've also seen come up in the CIO community? Uh, yes. In fact, we had a session on that, had a, had a plenary session on the, the role of the CIO uh, in, in, in fraud detection prevention uh, at our conference uh, just uh, last month in May. Uh, and so I think that is a growing area, particularly of anti-fraud solutions Mm -hmm. uh, what types of, you know, how can you improve the business process? Uh, and, and you're right, a huge part of that has been something which clearly has inter intersection with with uh, with AMP and its members is the whole area of identity and access management. So if you look at the, you know, CIO top 10 for 2023, there it is. Identity and access management mm -hmm. uh, has, is, is a major uh, area for interest of the CIOs. And a lot of that has to do with the uh, verification, well, the identity proofing, you all know the processes, but let's start with yep. that. That's a critical aspect of identity proofing, but what's the opportunity to create an enterprise identity solution? And by that, I mean, identity as a service. And we have states that have already done that. So I, I, I certainly wish we had a lot more. It's growing, but we have some early uh, success in states where you have delivered identity as an enterprise service where they are collaborating with the DMV, they're collaborating with other identity proofing, they're collaborating with outside, uh, you know, companies that you know, you know and love that, that that actually provide those capabilities for additional verification. And by bringing those all together, they can say, okay, now we we can be highly confident that this person is who they say they are, and we can allow them to transact business. During the pandemic, that was the wild, wild west, right? There was not that type of rigorous identity proofing. It, it took almost a year to get to that for a lot of states. And by that point, mm -hmm. you know, if you look at nationally, over 100 billion in some states, it was massive. But, you know, the, the reporting, depending on what reports you look at from GAO or the other IGs, it's at least $100 billion of the federal side uh, has, has been, uh, uh, was lost to fraud. Now they're recovering yeah. some of that, but clearly... You know, a lot of that is in, you know, someplace in some foreign country already. It's gone. It's in yep. it's in some bank account. So it so <laughs> that, yeah, there was tremendous amount. There was there was no. I think uh, in terms of the uh, the unemployment, one instance where they identified a, an individual uh, again a criminal, fiber criminal that had uh, applied for unemployment in forty one states. Mm. You know, again, that that those are the types of things that can't happen in the uh, in the future. So I think you're going to see. A lot, of, a lot of interest and investment on both. It's the, it's not just the technology. It's predominantly the business process, and that's where yeah. unemployment insurance, DUI, many of those um, typical protocols and constraints were all turned off, and in, in a way to be able to accelerate uh, unemployment insurance yeah. benefits being delivered to recipients. Mm -hmm. But that caused a lot of collateral damage. I think much more than um, than expected. Well, it's interesting. I think that's you know, probably an area of um, opportunity for collaboration because I imagine 
from the CIO perspective, they could look at the different fraud use cases, if you will. You see both the, you know, the DMV side, the employment side, health benefits, retirement benefits, whatever it is, whereas each agency is only looking at the fraud within their, their business process. Right. You're right. And that, and those are the conversations we've been having. And I think that's why if you, there's a, is a common thread or even an intersection of, I think of just a, a Venn diagram of all of these things mm. from the standpoint of the, so the, the top party for state CIOs for 10 consecutive years of cybersecurity and risk management, yeah. uh, several years, what's number two, digital services and enhancing the citizen experience, right? There you go. Th- those are inexorably tied to, for the most part, better identity management and better uh, identity proofing capabilities and streamlining that. So what what does what citizens want? You're right. They want uh, streamlined, secure, personalized services. Uh, you can't get those without some type of, you know, common identity. And I think the that's that's the challenge is what is that? Is there's two or three different schools of thought around identity? Is it a centralized capability as some states are doing, which is essentially owned, you know, by a centralized state unit? Uh, or is it the uh, sovereign identity decentralized model where your identity is owned by the citizen. It can be used Mm -hmm. in a variety of services. And so both of those are being debated by the states in terms of the the, uh, decentralized model uh, where it's essentially the citizen owns their identity and it can be used. Or is it one where their digital identity, so to speak, is is, uh, is done uh, through the state government? And that gets into the whole discussion that you all are having is certainly about MDLs, the mobile driver's license and, you know, the future that we're seeing, you know, continue to see every, every month or so a new state talking about that. Again, that makes it very convenient for citizens to be able to have an MDL in a variety of ways they transact with government. You know, I, I would kind of, I hope that that is the direction that all states go to in the future. Yeah, I think, um, and, and the opportunity then f- to use that MDL as a digital identity with other parts of, of government uh, to have that higher level of, of identity vetting. You know, the other topic you mentioned was modernization. That's one that our members have been talking a, a lot about for a number of years. And I guess I'm curious from the CIO's perspective, any view on the story of DMV modernization or is the DMV modernization story unique to the DMV world, are you seeing it in, in other agencies? What I mean by that is most state DMVs over the last, I'd say now over the last 10 years, have finally modernized You know mm-hmm. what was a 70s, 80s style mainframe infrastructure. Right. Uh, if they were lucky enough, you know, somebody hadn't retired yet that remembered how the original system worked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I think you, know, you mentioned you've worked on the state government side. You've probably lived it, lived it yourself. Uh, so talk to me about modernization. Is the DMV experience unique? Is it something you see in other agencies? No, not unique. It's fact, uh, across, uh, I think all what I'll call kind of the, the line of business and government. So again, we mentioned, uh, the classic one, which is unemployment insurance UI, mm-hmm. uh, they, uh, they were on the same modernization uh, path. Uh, these are, you know, massive systems with uh, high levels of integration and lots of uh, kind of back-end, uh, you know, uh, machinations that need to take place in terms of a lot of different things. But we're seeing that in not only that, uh, tax systems, 
you know, again, tremendous need for mm. modernization, but we're seeing that go on a tax system. The classic ones, of course, are, are in uh, the major, what I'll call entitlement and benefit programs, such as uh, SNAP, uh, nutritional, that, that's the old, uh, you know, program for, uh, uh, the program's been around for years uh, for supplemental uh, uh, nutrition assistance. Mm-hmm. Uh, MMIS, Medicaid Management Information Systems, another classic one. Uh, that has uh, looking for modernization. Many of these are funded in large part. Uh, in fact, in, in those instances, many of those uh, platforms like MMIS are 90-10 federal dollars, so 90% funded by the federal government because the mm. states are essentially delivering. They're the agents of right. delivery right, for Medicaid. So that's a different, that's a different model. The funding's coming from the federal side, but uh, the other ones are all those ones that are, are state, uh, state programs uh, that all, they all need uh, modernization, and they're all in various stages of, uh, of modernization. Like you said, it's a it's a huge challenge. States uh, still have a significant amount of technical debt, meaning they're holding on. They're 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 still maintaining that. So we did a study last year, twenty twenty two, on application modernization in the states. Surveyed all the state CIOs to look at their portfolio, to look at the challenges, and not surprisingly, what we found is uh, that fifty percent of the current applications in the state across all lines of business, 50% or more, but in most states it was 50% or more need to be modernized. That was the general thing. Like, what do we mean mm. by that? Well, they, they not, they may not be legacy in the sense that people use legacy meaning old and meaning aging. In right. fact, you can have a four year old legacy system because it has, it doesn't meet the business needs of the agency. So that's what we found. So the data points to the fact that anecdotally, we've been saying this, but what we know is a mid-sized state is going to have most likely around 2000 applications across all the agencies in the executive branch. So think about that. We're looking at that half of those are going to need to be modernized. That's, you know, literally hundreds of billions of dollars of investment that needs to take place across the country to bring these uh, into, into modernization. So the, the mainframe, uh, mm-hmm. is still predominantly the engine of choice for a lot of these massive systems, but that is declining. Uh, mainframes still serve, as they do in many other, you know, private sector and banking. Mainframes are still the predominant platform in in, in some of the large transactions, and so I think uh, I always remind people that that is still you know a tremendously valuable platform for the states, and you can have you know, literally dozens, if not hundreds, of of the critical state business applications that are being supported hmm. by your mainframe. What's shifted, long-winded answer here, what shifted is that we're now going to mainframe as a service in many states. So the state still has the compute capability of a mainframe, but the mainframe is now sitting in Colorado or Northern uh, Virginia or suburban Chicago, because now we have mainframe as a service. So it's a, it's almost like a cloud environment, but you have these capabilities being shifted from that. So that's kind of a stereotypical, you know, discussion around states is, well, where's your mainframe? Well, it's in the state data center. Well, no, actually it's in Boulder, Colorado. Right. Uh, and so we have about 15 states right now that are all moved to to mainframe as a service or they've moved to mainframe as a managed service in the data center in the capital. So it's on premise, but the state is no longer managing that. And I think that's the 
kind of common thread about all these conversations we've talked about, cybersecurity, modernization, modernizing the citizen experience and digital services. The common issue that we see and as we reported on across all states is what we described as the people imperative. That was the title of our report last year is that that's the major impediment challenge for the future of state government IT, whether it's in you know, DMV or whether it's in transportation or whether it's in public safety, corrections, it's common is that the states do not have the necessary employment, employee staff and complements mm. and capabilities and disciplines that they had before to, to do all this. And part of this is because of the modernization. So they, you know, they don't have the complement of that. And that's very difficult to recruit and retain those individuals to come into state government with the opportunities they have in the private marketplace. And that's just yeah. the reality of what states are faced with today. So they have to have a new, you know, they have to have a new approach, which we've outlined in a number of our reports, like what can states do to uh, attract and, and, and retain? I mean, recruiting mm -hmm. is extremely difficult. Yes. Um, and so people want to go work for the latest and greatest, you know, technology company. Sure. Uh, they, they don't want to come work for the state because they don't see that as a challenging. And in fact, there's some tremendous opportunities in states that that people don't understand. So what, what are because we we see that clearly in the in the DMV space, in the ANVA space, retention, recruitment, not only of IT professionals, but across the board. Uh, could you share from that report some key tips that maybe are universal that our members, regardless of, you know, where, where they sit, might be able to benefit from? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And so I think you've seen that. And, and I will, I will uh, tell you what it was like 15 years ago, 20 years ago. You know, you saw this. I actually moderated a panel of CIOs at our conference. And this is when we were talking about, you know, salaries, compensation. We needed to increase compensation. Mm -hmm. So they had plenty yeah. of talent that wanted to come work for the state. So I asked the question of one of my, my CIOs who had been there a long time. I said, how do you attract young IT talent to, to the CIO organization, to state IT. And he looked at me and he said, he said, I, I, I hide in the bushes and make a noise like a benefit. All right. So that's how, it, <laughs> that's how you got people into government, right? You had a pension, you had tremendous healthcare yeah. benefits. You had yep. a, you know, a, you had, you know, 40 hours or less work week, mm -hmm. right? You may be sitting in a cubicle, but there was a lot of stability. There was a lot mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, benefit packages. You could, you could stay for 30 years and walk out with a pension. And so none of those things exist today. Well, you know, what yep. employees want is they want flexibility. You know, they want a diverse mm -hmm. workforce. So that, so we've outlined, uh, particularly in cybersecurity, because that's a core interest. We've done multiple studies and one, which we just released a few months ago in, so we worked uh, with the National Governors Association, because this is really at that mm -hmm. level. So NGA and NASIO have done a number of reports over the years. And so we decided to focus on the cyber workforce, but I think these, uh, what, what states are doing in that space really map to other areas. And, and, and one, I think, is, is the, there's no really strong effort across the states around making state government the employer of choice, meaning mm. the marketing and, and sending the right message to the right audience. And there are a lot of, of, of millennials and Gen Zs that want to give back. So we have that yes. kind of innate public sector regardedness, so to speak, that they want to do something, but states don't do a very good job. So, so making that as a, a conscious effort and marketing that. Another part is just, as I mentioned, modernizing the whole work culture, the work 
workplace and workforce experience, which I don't know, uh, you know, and certainly in my tenure, have, having the phrase state government and flexibility in the same sentence, you didn't see that too much. That's right. right. So that is another thing is, you know, can you work through these constraints of uh, the 40-hour the work week and eight hours a day? Can you work, you know, have modernizing flexible schedules clearly remote work is part of that and that's a mm-hmm. relatively we, we we didn't four years ago we asked we did a survey remote work was not an answer this year 18 percent of the state said remote work clearly is a, a key sure. element of that so i think that's important a a focus on that workplace flexibility and that might mean for example uh you know the the then the, it's probably seems trivial but it's you know well, i don't want to work in a cubicle 40 mm-hmm. hours a week. I want to, I want to mm-hmm. be able to, to, to move around and have some cross boundary collaboration in the IT space. I think there's a couple of critical things. Number one is updating job titles, job descriptions. Many States have antiquated and really arcane job titles, and they don't mean anything in the marketplace. I saw one just a couple of weeks ago, they were recruiting for three positions. It was information technologist, one information technologist, two <laughs> information technology, three. Now, what does that mean? They yeah. have to look at the job description. Yeah. The job description really was, was pretty mundane. Like, you know, tell, tell people what, what these jobs really mean. And I think that's, uh, that's, that's important. So updating those job titles, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, that is a high target. So there's a lot of folks mm. who want to have a diverse workforce. Uh, and so we focused on that. We had a couple of great uh, presentations at our, our mid-year conference about states that are doing really, really interesting things around building uh, a, 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 an inclusive uh, workforce and uh, targeting individuals and making that's a cultural thing. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, a couple of final things that I think are, are probably along the lines of that are appropriate to, to any state government. We're seeing this is, is, you know, look up, look, look to removing the educational college education degree requirements from a lot of these positions. And you've seen uh, multiple states yes. do this, you know, Maryland, uh, did it, uh, I think, first. There's a lot of people working with that. So now we have multiple states that have said, you know, do we really need to have a college degree requirement to mm-hmm. do these jobs? And in many cases, they found no. And that's the case, certainly, in IT, that you can have experience, you can have mm-hmm. three cybersecurity certifications, and mm-hmm. don't necessarily need to have a master's degree in cybersecurity to to, to, uh, to hold that job. I think the, the final thing I would mention that we found which was which was uh, which was critical was uh, investing in training and, and upskilling and I'll use the word reskilling for states mm-hmm. and that's specifically focused on IT. Uh, I think that's an area the states have not done a very good job is uh, reskilling the workforce. Like you talked about modernization. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you, if you're trying to modernize folks to say we're going to be a cloud centric environment, you don't have those the cloud architects and contract right. you don't have those contracting skills you don't have all those folks in place so how about reskilling your current workforce as opposed to trying to hire and see if people yep. have that so that in our own study that was actually the the predominant answer when we asked CIOs what's your approach to uh, you know to, to bringing in the you know a workforce they said we're going to first focus on on reskilling our existing workforce. Because these people have already committed to a public sector career. 
Right. And so we're going to see if we can reskill them. And so states have done uh, very, some states have done a very good job with skills assessment and then creating a career path by providing training. But again, that's another area where states have not invested enough and that's training. Mm-hmm. That's excellent. So there's a this, lot. There's a lot to choose. There's a there. lot. Yeah, you. I yeah. mean, you went through a number of things. Each one of them could be a podcast episode in of themselves. <laughs> is, that, uh, is that report publicly available? Is it something we it can is. share with it our is. members? Yes, all of our reports. Uh, we all of our reports are publicly available. We do not have a paywall at NASIO. so all of our studies and reports um, are. Uh, are available. And so you can go find, uh, you know, the data behind a lot of the things that I talked about are all on nasio.org and just hit that uh, research uh, resource center uh, button and, and look for a study called securing states. And it is the, the uh, modernizing the, uh, the, the cybersecurity workforce. And again, that was a collaboration with the uh, national government association. We actually brought a group together in person for a couple of days, uh, a, a roundtable of both mm-hmm. public and private sector and by state officials, not just from technology, from HR, from mm-hmm. uh, administration. We brought them together uh, for a couple of days uh, to sit down and actually collaborate and, and, and share like all of the things that uh, all the things that they are doing. And so we've kind of been able to capture all of that. And there's a there's several uh uh, case studies in that report. So there's highlighting states that have done some things around uh, these uh, these various topics. And and we know, for example, the remote work uh, and the even out of state, you know, kind of what they call borderless hiring. There's mm-hmm. tremendous opportunities for information technology, but that's a big challenge in the states is overcoming that both uh, it may be uh, maybe statutorily prohibited, mm. uh, maybe in a an HR policy that you cannot be a you know an employee from state. you know outside of state uh, but many states uh, have the opportunity to do that and they're finding value in saying well you know we need cybersecurity talent yep. you know if, you know if you live in Texas and we need you in North Dakota we're good we're good yep. we need we need that talent so uh, and and that, again that's part of the benefit package that many people are looking for is that I I am I'm, you know we heard from people I would I would go work for the state of X but I live over here. Mm-hmm. And I really don't want to move to that state capital, but I'm I'm right. certainly I'm interested in public sector work. So I think these are heavy lifts. Uh, and uh, as you mentioned, if you look at, you know, the last certainly we have many studies that we've done. It's interesting to me. I mean, looking back at a, a report we did almost 20 years ago on IT consolidation, what was the number one impediment was organizational resistance to change. <laughs> so 20 years later, we say, what's the number of impediment to this dude's organizational, organizational resistance to change? Yes. So, you, you know, you know, Ian, that, that these things haven't Absolutely. changed. Right. As you know, as sure as death and taxes, resistance to change is going to be right up there. Yeah. Yeah. So people feel threatened by these uh, these new models. And so, yeah. uh, you know, we're 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 having a lot of those conversations today with our with our working group on generative A.I., Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, what the, there's tremendous opportunities for generative AI in the public sector, particularly in state government, but it creates, you know, threats, it creates dangers, it creates, uh, you know, I don't believe it's, it's uh, Armageddon, as some people believe, but I think there's, you know, to be cautious about uh, its appropriate utilization within, yeah. uh, within states. So we're, we're having those conversations today. Yeah, it's like, you know, like any of these new tools when they are new understanding them, understanding how to use them and understanding the right, the right place for them. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I recall my 
early uh, efforts uh, in digital government in the states when I I, I made uh, I was the chief architect and we were working with agencies and I said we should allow the citizens to do X Y and Z online and pay for it and mm -hmm. and many of the people around the table were just kind of stunned at looking at me and they said well but we have offices that do that today and mm -hmm. I said I understand that but the citizens in the future are not going to want to come to your office. You know, mm -hmm. they, they, they're going to have the capabilities, they're going to have the technology, they're going to have the infrastructure, they're going to operate like consumers, and they're going to want to do that. And I got a lot of pushback to that, you know, self-service model. Of course, sure. that's... Look know, at us now. Look, yeah, that's that's where yeah. we are today, right? That's what everybody aspires to. And I think the DMV is certainly at the kind of tip of the spear with all of that, because that's uh, gets a lot of criticism of, well, we don't want to... We don't want to go to the DMV. So you have to modernize that whole experience. So, you know, I've been, uh, I've been absolutely. very happy with my last two visits to the DMV. So I, I, oh, went, excellent. I, I went online, I made an appointment. I got a text message on my reminder. I got, you know, I showed up at the appointed time. I got it done in a few minutes to get my upgrade to my real ID and whatever that was a few years ago. And everything went very smoothly and I was in and out and, I did it all by, you know, scheduling an appointment and doing it online. As I walked by all these people standing in line, mm -hmm. I said, I look, want to look at them and say, you guys need to get, get your phone out and make an appointment because it's very <laughs> easy to do. Why? But I think that's the challenge with states and we're finding that in our, in our current research efforts around improving the citizen experience, that is a, you know, again, trying to identify common patterns of success. That is a common issue, which is um, citizens do not perceive the state as being delivered those modern services. Therefore, they don't investigate that. And part of that challenge with the states, because states are not spending a, hardly anything at all marketing the fact that right. actually you can conduct these services virtually. You don't need to come to our office, right? You don't need to do that anymore. Uh, but That's the right. states don't spend a lot of money marketing that as certain their private sector counterparts do to, to get them out. You know, the, the omni-channel probably isn't going to happen uh, in for states for a while, but I think there's opportunities to collapse that down and say, we can, we can put you through. And, uh, and I think that's the, the national research on all that shows that that's what citizens want. They prefer that uh, that digital experience over everything else. So you know, I, yep. I, I, I kind of go, we're a data-driven organization. I kind of look at that as like, oh, that's the case. Then how do you get the agencies to uh, to be able to move in that in that direction when it is a threat to their to their current you know current workforce? Absolutely, it's back to that yeah. resistance to change. And uh, but you know, I think at the end of the day, what I have to remember is those states. The state still needs to deliver all of those services, right? Those agencies Absolutely. and their missions are not going away. It's just about how, in you know, twenty twenty four and beyond, is it being delivered in a customer centric way rather than well, this is the way we've done it for forty years. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Doug, I really appreciate you spending some time with me today. I think we could probably talk for, you know, at least another 45 minutes on things we didn't even get to. So I'll look forward to continuing the conversation at another date and uh, bringing this collaboration between AMVA and NASIO um, a little little closer, a little more regular, a little more exciting than I think maybe we, we've been in the past. I think that's a great opportunity for both of us. 
I, I'm, I'm right there with you, and I thank you very, uh, very much, and a good conversation. Like I said, I, uh, we could talk about a lot of these topics for several yeah. hours, but we'll leave that for another podcast that sometime in the future we'll focus great. in on something. Okay. Perfect. Great. All right. Thanks, Doug. Thank you all thank for you. listening this week. As always, thanks to our producers, Claire Jeffrey and Chelsea Hadwin. Till next week, everyone, stay well. Thank you for joining us for AmbaCast. Hosted by Ian Grossman. Produced by Claire Jeffrey and Chelsea Hadwin. Music by Gibson Arthur. This episode was brought to you by Get Mobile ID by Get Group North America. Visit us at amvacast.podbean.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify.